Good morning, Freedom. My name's Eric, and I'm the pastor here, and we're grateful that you're worshiping with us. I think all of our elementary age kids have already gone out to their uh, class to learn on their level, so uh, if there's any left in here, we can uh, help them get to their classroom. But part of the value we have in children's ministry is that we want our elementary age kids to, to worship here with their parents. Uh, our value is to partner with you as parents in discipling your children, and so part of the way we do that is you worship uh, with your kids, and then your kids actually go, and they're going to learn the same text from Romans 10 that we're talking about today. And so uh, hopefully we'll create some opportunities for conversations throughout the week with your children as you can talk about uh, God's Word together. And for those of you who are new with us, we're in a series called Imperfect Relationships. And throughout this series, we've been looking at the three main areas of relationships in our lives. Our relationship with God, first and foremost. Then we talked about our relationship within the body of Christ. And then the next two weeks, we're going to talk about our relationship with those who are far from God, with those who are outside the body of Christ. Then beginning on August 14th, we're going to uh, dive into another book of the Bible, which is typically what we do here at Freedoms. We teach through books of the Bible. And so on August 14th, once we kind of get through summer, once school gets back in session, and once everybody kind of gets in their normal routine, we're going to be uh, diving into the book of Galatians, and that'll probably take us throughout the entire fall up until Christmas as we walk through verse by verse uh, through this incredible, incredible book of Galatians. So if you want to go ahead and start reading Galatians to get ahead, to get a familiar with the book, I just encourage you uh, to go ahead and do that because it's going to be a fantastic, incredible, incredible book. Well, this morning, as we talk about those, our relationship with those that are far from God. Here's what I want you to understand. Our culture, our society really has no problem with you and I placing our faith in Jesus Christ. That's not really an issue. They, they, in fact, in, in my conversations with people far from God, it, it's not even a matter of me talking about my faith because it's my faith. What I've discovered, though, is that the issue that many people in our culture and in our society have with the Christian faith is the idea that Jesus is the only way. That's where the rub is. That's where the difficulty is. The fact that Jesus would claim that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, that means no one, comes to the Father except through him. That's where the rub is. That's where the challenge is. And one of the main reasons that people reject that idea and have a difficult time with that, that idea is because it seems unfair. It seems unfair that God would say that Jesus is the only way. What about all the other religions? What about all the other ways? What about all the people that claim a different path, a different way? What about the person who has never heard? What about that person? What about the person that... that no one has ever shared the gospel with. It seems unfair. And that's what many in our culture would say. Would God really hold someone accountable for something they've never heard before? That's the question. And unfortunately, or, well, what, what has resulted in that is, is what I call a functional universalism, which is what many people believe. And what that means is, is that most people that we come in contact with, believe that everybody, or just about everybody, makes it into heaven. It's called functional universalism, that, that everyone makes it. Everybody's in, except for the really bad people. Those people, they don't get in. But everybody else, man, you're good. If you're a decent person, you're in. And here's the challenge, is that there are so many 
Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, who either don't know what they believe, or they don't really think about it very much. And the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans as a way of explaining the doctrine of salvation. Paul wrote this book after after he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. His life was radically transformed, radically changed. And Paul writes the book of Romans to the church in Rome who was dealing with a lot of those same issues. There were a lot of different pathways in Rome to get to God. There were a lot of different gods to worship in Rome. There were were all these things going on in Rome. So Paul writes the book of Romans in order to explain the doctrine of salvation. The fact that you and I are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That the only way that we earn, or we don't earn salvation, the only way we receive salvation is by the blood of Jesus Christ. His atoning work on the cross and believing in that work. See, what's remarkable about Paul, he spent his entire life, or most of his life, following a religion that was based upon him keeping the law, him working his way towards salvation. And when his life was radically transformed by Jesus, when his life was given over to to Christ, when he met Jesus on that Damascus road, he comes to the conclusion that Jesus is the only way to be saved. And the book of Romans makes it abundantly clear that there is nothing absolutely nothing you and I can do to earn salvation. There is nothing that you and I can do to gain favor with God. There's nothing that we can do to get to heaven. You and I are dead in our trespasses and our sins. And because of that, it is only through the grace and mercy of God that we can be saved. And Romans makes that abundantly clear. Paul lays it out in Romans. In fact, what I want to do today is I want to give us just a big overview of the logical steps that Paul takes to come to this conclusion that Jesus is the only way. And we're going to look at two or three passages uh, in the book of Romans. Then Then we're going to come follow it up with Romans 10 where Paul lays out the implications for you and I as the body of Christ based on the steps that he's taken to determine that Jesus is the only way, we're going to end up today in Romans 10, where Paul shows us what that means for you and I as followers of Christ when it comes to our relationships with people far from God. And so, uh, what I want to do is walk through these, these logical steps. And Paul's logic really takes six different steps to get to the conclusion that he comes to. And the first step is this. All people, all people have heard about God. Look what what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He begins 18 verses in, 18 sentences in. He starts and says, listen, everybody's heard about God. Listen to what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
in the things that he has that have been made so they that's all people are without excuse look at verse 19 again for what can be known about god is plain to them because god has shown it to them so what paul is saying is that god has revealed himself and god has made the truth about himself known to all people he's already made himself known to all people and paul then explains if you read through romans the rest of romans 1 he explains two ways in which every human being everywhere for all eternity has been made aware of god First and foremost, in creation. Paul says the glory of creation points to the fact that there must be a creator. The fact that you can walk out and look at the mountains and the ocean and the, and the hills and the trees and all of creation reminds us, says looking at the beauty and majesty of creation, says there must be someone who created this. This cannot be an accident. But not only that, just looking at humanity, looking at, at, at one another, there's no way that I can look at you and say that you are a biological accident. It's impossible. For those of us who've had children, Johnny, you just had a baby born on, on Thursday. There's no way when your child is born that you can say, oh, that's an accident. You may have said whoops when they are conceived, but once they're born. <laughs> you just can't, it's impossible to look at a baby and say, oh my gosh, how, you know, th th what an accident. This is, it, you can't happen. It's no, there's no way. And so is, if you look at your spouse, your children, your family, your friends, your neighbors, there's no way that you can look at them and say, man, this thing is just a biological accident. So first and foremost, God says in creation that, or Paul says in creation, God has made himself known. And in fact, the, let's think about just our own selves, our own souls. There is a longing for eternity in every single one of us. I was talking with a friend last week and we were, we were, we were talking about his conversion to Christ and he talked about the fact that there was this longing for eternity what blaze pascal said there is a god-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by god the creator made known through jesus christ every single one of us have a god-shaped vacuum that we were born with that, that can only be filled through jesus christ and there's a longing in each and every human being for that vacuum to be filled now we fill it with a lot of things besides god and we'll get to that in just a few moments but the reality is we all have that and so first of all in creation second of all through our conscience our own conscience speaks to the to the fact that there is a god because think about this if your conscience tells you that something is wrong you feel bad for doing it don't you even if you're an unbeliever even if you don't believe in god even if you're an atheist if you 
are told by your conscience that something is wrong, and you do it anyway. You feel bad for doing it. Why? Because your, your own conscience is telling you there is a lawgiver, and one day you will be held accountable for your actions because of that lawgiver. So the obvious question is, well, what about atheists? What about people who don't believe? What about people who reject the fact that there is a God? Well, I'll explain a little bit more of that later, but here's what I want you to know for now. Atheism is an acquired belief. It's not innate. No one is born with an innate belief that there is no God. We are all born with that vacuum that Pascal called a God-shaped vacuum that can only be filled by God himself, not by any created thing, but only through Jesus Christ. And so that's why our culture, in every single culture in every part of the world that's ever been discovered, that has ever lived, has had some form of God at the center of that culture. Because they believe that there's something or someone that, is, that they are going to be held accountable to. But look what Paul says at the end of verse 18. He says, Who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. By their unrighteousness. So here's what he's saying. Our universal response to the revelation of God, either through creation or through our own conscience, is to suppress that truth. That's our universal response. We are universally going to suppress the truth about God. We're going to reject the truth about God. And so why? We, we want to, in our, own, in our own human nature, we resist His glory and resist His rule. We're born that way. We're born sinners. And so instead of giving God glory... And allowing him to reign, what, we, what have we done? We've made ourselves the center of the universe. We've made ourselves the, the ruler. We've made ourselves basically God. We've given ourselves the glory and we obey our own rules. Every single one, every single one of us is born that way. Which is why Paul leads to a second logical step. And that's this. All people have rejected God. All people have rejected God. Let's, if you have your Bible, slip over to Romans 3. Here's what Paul says in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That's a pretty bleak description of humanity, isn't it? None of us are righteous. None of us are seeking God. In fact, in verse 12, it's not going to be on the screen, but he says, no one does good, not even one. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before any of their eyes. In other words, every single one of us have rejected God. That's our natural response to the revelation of God is to reject God. Some of us reject it through our system of religion. Any religion that is centered around man is a rejection of God. Even Christianity that is centered around man, which unfortunately there's a lot of that around there and around us, but any form of Christianity that is centered around me or humanity as opposed to God is a rejection of God. Any religion that is works-based where you can earn your salvation is a rejection of God. So some reject him through their religious system. Others reject him just by uh, reject religion altogether. But the universal response for each and every one of us is the rejection of God. And here's the truth. 
Every single one of us have rejected God. And quite honestly, we do that even today. That's our struggle, right? Because our own humanity, our flesh, wants to naturally resist God. We want to resist his glory. We want to reject his rule and reign in our lives. Even as followers of Christ, we struggle with this, don't we? There are times in my life where I disobey what I know to be right. And none of us live up to our own standards of right and wrong, do we? Like, we know we're supposed to be honest, don't we? How many of us ever told a lie? A few of you are are truthful, and the rest of you are lying right now. We know that we're to be loving. Sometimes, we're not quite loving, are we? It's just a reality. We're selfish at times. We know we should have compassion, but oftentimes we're apathetic. So many of the times we disobey God by, by we, diso, we, 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 diso, we reject God by disobeying what we know to be right and wrong. Other things, we, other way we reject God is by seeking things other than God. Listen, life's greatest pursuit that any of us can ever pursue is to chase and pursue a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And yet there are times in our lives where we pursue other things over that relationship with God. We know that Jesus should come first. Even as followers of Christ, we know that Christ should come before all things. He said you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. (coughs) Excuse me. But the reality is we don't always do that, do we? The reality is we pursue other things. We get preoccupied with so many other things. And then what happens is some turn to atheism, paganism, or some other ism in order to persuade themselves that God doesn't even exist. So Paul says that we are all, we've all rejected God. And then he comes to his third conclusion is this. All people are guilty before God. All people, every single person is guilty before God. In fact, Romans 3 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us are sinners. Not a single person in this room or watching online or anyone you come in contact is not a sinner. All have sinned. Every single one of us have sinned. And Paul says that because we have suppressed the truth, Romans 1.18, we deserve the wrath of God. Because we have suppressed the truth. Now that makes sense, right? If you and I have made the decision that we are to be God, and we've shaken our fist at God and say, I reject you, then it makes sense that we deserve his wrath. We deserve punishment for our sin. Here's the challenge. We don't like that. Not a single one of us hears that and says, you know what? Yeah, I deserve that. No, why? We don't understand our own depravity. We don't understand our own fallenness, our own sin. We often view sin as doing wrong, doing something bad, like lying, cheating, sleeping around, doing drugs, you know, the murder, hatred, that, like that's the way we categorize sin. And so then if I categorize sin that way, then what I can do is say, well, my sins, lying and cheating are so much better than murder and, and, and criminal activity, right? So I don't look at myself as being that depraved. But here's the reality. Sin at its very core 
is cosmic treason. Sin at its very core is saying, God, I am God, not you. I am in control, not you. I am the one that is Lord, not you. Sin at its very core is saying, I want to be God. Therefore, I want to rule. I want to reign. And so we end up robbing God of his glory. And in our hearts, we resent and resist the God of the universe. That's what sin is at its very core. And the truth is, we don't like that. We don't like to, be, to think that we are guilty before God. We don't like to think that we deserve God's wrath. And we're blown away by the fact that God would even punish us for our sin. And here's what we're going to discover in just a few moments. That Paul, he's amazed, he is in awe of the fact that God would love and pursue us despite the fact that we have deserted despised and rejected rejected God. So let me put these first three ideas together, and then we're going to move on to some better news, because it's been pretty bad news so far. We're going to move on to some better news. But here's, here's, here's the, these three ideas. First and foremost, all people are guilty before God, not because of what they haven't heard, but because of what they have heard and rejected. Because God has made himself known to all people. And so it's not that we are guilty because of what we haven't heard. We are guilty because, we, because of what we have heard and because of what we've rejected. In other words, that innocent person that we talked about at the beginning doesn't exist. They don't exist. All have heard and all have rejected God, which leads to Paul's fourth Uh, step his logical step is this is that salvation god has made a way of salvation for all people look at verse um verse uh, uh 21 but now the righteousness of god has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to us so what he's saying is this that we that salvation the righteousness of god is not a result of us keeping the law. The righteousness of God and the law, the law points to the righteousness of God. It points to salvation in Christ. The prophets in the Old Testament pointed to salvation in Christ. And then he goes on to say, for the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul, in these short verses, gives us four key words. Gift, redemption, grace, and believe. Those four key words help us understand God's plan of salvation. God's way for you and I to be saved. First of all, he says gift. He says that God's salvation is a gift there's nothing you can earn there's no it's not a reward for keeping the law it's not anything you and i can do to earn salvation it is a gift it's not a reward for doing right it is a gift but here's what i want you to know just because it's a gift doesn't mean that it's free yes salvation is free to you and i but it cost jesus his very life 
And so first and foremost, Paul says, listen, salvation is a gift. But then he goes on to talk about redemption. And he says that the gift that Jesus gives us is that he paid the penalty for our sins. The wrath of God that we deserve, Jesus paid that payment in full. He is, he, through his blood, through his shed blood, Jesus on the cross took our place, became sin for us so that you and I never have to experience the wrath of God. We never have to go through that punishment because Jesus took it upon himself. The full wrath of God was poured out upon him. And then in verse 25, he says that Jesus became the propitiation by his blood that is received by faith. He became sin for us. And he redeemed us as a result. Third word he says is grace. That you and I are justified by grace. What is grace? Grace is God's undeserved, unmerited favor towards us. It's his unearned kindness. So what is amazing to Paul is not that God would judge us for our sin. What is amazing to Paul is that God is so gracious and kind to us that he would redeem us through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what blew Paul away. That God in his kindness and in his grace and in his mercy would redeem us. Fourth word we see is believe. And what Paul is showing us is the way we receive this gift, this gift of redemption, this gift of salvation is simply to believe. Believe that Jesus' atoning work on the cross is sufficient and all you need for salvation. Gift, redemption, grace, believe. Salvation is the gift that Jesus offers to all who will believe. And his grace is undeserved, it is unearned, it is not the result of anything you and I can do on our own. It's not the result of our works. And so Paul says God has made a way of salvation for all people. And then the fifth logical step that Paul takes is this, that people must hear the gospel to believe it and be saved. People must hear the gospel to believe it and be saved. Let's flip over to Romans 10. This is where the, the crux of our message is for today. Or there are really the implications of, of this message today when it comes to people that are far from God. And here's what Paul says in Romans 10, beginning in verse 14. How then will they call upon him, that is Jesus, in whom they have not believed? So Paul's argument, remember, he said that we're all have been told about God through creation and through our conscience. Because of that, we've all rejected God. And as a, as a result of our rejection of God, we have been made guilty before God. And because of God's grace, he's made a way for salvation. And then Paul says, so how will they call upon Jesus in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Jesus of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed that he has heard from us? In verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 
What is Paul saying? He's, Paul is saying that people can only believe in Jesus. They can only believe the gospel. They can only come to faith when they've heard the message. And the way they hear the message is that you and I must tell them. That's Paul's conclusion. That the way people come to faith is by hearing the message. And in order to hear the message, we, the church, are the ones to tell them. Now, you may be thinking, well, what about someone who's never heard about Jesus? Kind of going back to the very first point. What about that person? What about the person who's never responded to, to, to God in that way? Maybe they didn't reject God like we talked about earlier. Maybe they, maybe they have tried to follow God. Maybe they are pursuing God as earnestly as they possibly can, but yet they don't know Jesus because they've never heard about Jesus. What about that guy? What about that guy that in his heart of hearts knows that there is a God, he just doesn't know who that God is because he's never heard? What about that guy? Well, first and foremost, what I want you to understand and keep in mind is that Paul has already showed us that all people respond to the truths about God by rejecting God. And second thing I want to point out is that God, uh, Paul tells us in Romans 10, 17, that the only way for faith to grow in the faith in Jesus Christ, to grow in the human heart is by hearing and hearing comes through the word of God. But here's what's interesting. What's interesting is the book of Acts describes an individual who was just like that it describes an individual who was who was earnestly believing in god who was seeking and trying to discover who this god is and his name is cornelius in acts chapter 10 i want i want y'all to see this this is this is incredible because in acts chapter 10 beginning in verse 1 it talks about this man named cornelius this man who didn't know Jesus, who hadn't heard of Jesus, but was earnestly pursuing God. And here's what it says. At Caesarea, there was a man. His name was Cornelius. A centurion. So he's Roman. He, well, he's actually Italian. But he's a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Look what it says in verse 2 about Cornelius. He was a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people. And look what he says. And he prayed continually to God. So Cornelius is that guy. He's that guy that has pursued God without knowing who Jesus is. He's that guy that, that in his heart of hearts is trying to discover who God is. He's praying to God. He's trying to fear God, even though he doesn't know who God is. In verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw a vision. A vision of an angel of God. They came in and he said to him, Cornelius. Look at verse 4. And he stared at him in terror and said, Yeah, I think I would too if an angel just appeared. I would be scared. What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers, your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Verse 5. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. Now, I encourage you to go ahead and read the rest of chapter 10. But what happens next is nothing short of amazing. Peter has also a vision from God that says a man from, from Caesarea named Cornelius is going to send for you. And when he does, I want you to go with him. And what happens is Peter goes to Cornelius. And when he gets there, what does Peter do? He shares the gospel with him. He tells him about Jesus. He explains to him. 
in verse 32 or 42 that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will have their sins forgiven. In fact, he says everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So what is he saying? Peter's saying, listen, this God that you've been pursuing, this God that you've been trying to fill your heart with, that vacuum that you've had in your heart that you've tried to fill, his name is Jesus. And if you will believe in him, you shall have the forgiveness of sins. Here's what I want you to notice. Notice that Peter does not say, Cornelius, because you are such a good guy, and because you have been seeking after God, you are already saved and don't need the gospel. That's not what Peter says at all. In fact, Peter explains the gospel to him. And he says, no, you, in order to be saved, you must believe in Jesus. And then, after you believe in Jesus, then you will receive the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus' name. See, throughout the Bible, the gospel is never proclaimed. It never goes forward apart from a human instrument. Apart from one person sharing the gospel with another person. I encourage you to look through the book of Acts. Read the book of Acts. You will not find an instance where the gospel is advancing without the church advancing it. Now, in this story in Cornelius, it would have been a whole lot easier if the angel would have just explain to Cornelius, hey, here's the gospel. He wouldn't have to bring Peter from Joppa. He wouldn't have to have a Jew interact with a Gentile. I mean, none of that stuff would have had to happen. But the reality is the gospel only goes forward when, it, when one person carries it to another. The angel could have, he could, certainly could have explained the gospel to Cornelius. But instead, he has Peter explain the gospel. Because the gospel must be carried by each and every one of us. So let's go back to Romans. And we're going to wrap up in just a minute. In Romans chapter 10, Paul does not leave the door open for any other option except for you and I carrying the gospel where we live, work, and play. Paul doesn't say, hey, perhaps maybe in Evans, Georgia, the gospel will go forward differently. Maybe I'll just send angels to Evans. No, what does he say? He says the church must be sent. My people must go forward. You and I must carry the gospel. How will they call on Jesus if they've never heard? And how are they to hear unless you and I are sent. That's Paul's conclusion. Listen, have, have you ever considered have you ever considered the fact that the people where you live, work, and play, your neighbors, your family members, your, your co-workers, your classmates, perhaps are pursuing God right now. And they're seeking for something to fill that God-shaped vacuum in their heart. And perhaps, perhaps God has placed you in that place where you live, work, and play to be their Peter. Because they are like Cornelius searching after God. Have you ever considered that?
that perhaps God has placed you where you work. God has placed you where you live in the neighborhood, on the street, in the cul-de-sac. God has placed you on your child's sports teams for the purpose of you being their Peter. So that they can hear the gospel and realize the thing they've been trying to fill that vacuum with is not the truth of Jesus. And personally, I believe that is why God has placed each and every one of us where we live, work, and play. God has placed us around the people that we come in contact with to be Christ ambassadors. To share the good news, the truth of the gospel. How will they call on Jesus if they've never heard? And how can they hear unless we are sent? See, the inconvenient truth is that people around us, people in this world that we live in, in order for them to hear the gospel, we, you and I, the church, are the only ones who can preach it to them. Which is why we come up to the sixth uh, sixth step that Paul takes, and that is this. The task is urgent. The task is urgent. The only thing that God is going to use to reach people that are far from him is us. That's it. There is no plan B. We are the only ones by which they will hear the gospel. Each and every one of us are called to carry the gospel where we live, work, and play. People cannot be saved apart from hearing about Jesus. And they cannot hear about Jesus unless we tell them. Now church, if that is true, and I believe that it is, we don't have time to play games. We don't have time to play church. We don't have time to pursue anything other than being gospel carriers where God has placed us. So what are we going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? That's the question that we come to at the end of, uh, end of this message, end of, end of this first ten chapters of Romans. We can deny it. Which, quite honestly, that's what a lot of people choose to do, just deny the fact that, that Jesus is the only way. We can ignore it. Just not think about it. I'm just going to do my own life. I'm just going to follow Jesus. I'm just going to step back and, you know, do that. Or we can embrace it. We can give our lives fully to it and allow God to use us each and every day where we live, where we work, and where we play. Now, doing that doesn't mean that we go and be jerks and beat people up with the gospel. Because what does Paul say? He says, listen, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. There's nothing beautiful about hitting someone upside the head with the truth. But there is something beautiful about loving your neighbor enough to tell them that God loves them and has provided a way for their salvation through Jesus Christ. That is beautiful. That is what we're called to do. And the, I love the fact that it's not fully on you as an individual. It is part, it is, it is all of our part. We all play a part by investing, inviting those who are far from God. And I know some of you are saying, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to carry the gospel. We're going to talk more about that next week. 
before we get into the book of Galatians. But here's what I would leave you with. Is that God wants to use you. And he wants the steps that you take to be beautiful. Beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. And that your truth, your word is so so relevant to the place where we live. And just as Paul walked through in the book of Romans this doctrine of salvation, this gospel that we are called to carry where we live, work, and play. Lord, I pray that you would that you would empower us as a church to be your ambassadors. That our feet would be beautiful to those that are perishing because we're bringing them good news. Father, we know that the task is urgent. That you have told us that how will they know if they haven't heard? And how will they hear unless we are sent? And my prayer for us as a church is as this local expression of your body is that, God, we would live sent. That we would realize that we're not just in the neighborhoods and the homes and the streets and the cul-de-sacs and the businesses and the places where we go to school and, and the places where we rec- do recreation. We're not just in those places just for the sake of being there. We're there because people around us are searching to fill that vacuum in their hearts. That God-shaped vacuum that can only be filled by Jesus Christ. And they're seeking all other mannerisms and all other ways of seeking it. Of filling that void. And we have the good news. We have the truth of the gospel. And Father, help us be earnest in our carrying of the gospel. And sharing of the gospel. And loving our neighbors to the gospel. Father, we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Listen, if you are here this morning or are watching online and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God has provided that way of salvation. It is a free gift of redemption through His grace. And you receive it by believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if that's you, I encourage you to talk to someone and say, you know what, I want to receive that free gift. I want to become a follower of Jesus so that I can carry the gospel to those who are just like me and are far from God. And so I encourage you to talk to any, someone who invited you, talk to someone else in, this, uh, in the church if you came on your own, or talk to your family members at home if you're watching online. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, this task is incredibly urgent. That we carry the gospel, that we share the gospel, that we, that we live out the gospel before our neighbors. And so let's continually look for opportunities to make the good news known. And we're going to conclude our service uh, with communion. But before you go and participate in communion today, what I encourage you to do is to think about the people where you live, work, and play. 
perhaps one, maybe two names will pop in your mind. And I just encourage you to pray for them before you receive communion. Because communion is a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. Through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection. His broken body and his shed blood paid for our redemption. And it is that message of redemption that we are to carry to those that are far from God. And so before you get up and move to, to one of the four stations in our, in, our, in our room, I just encourage you to pray for those that are far from God. That you would ask God to give you opportunities to share the good news. To carry those beautiful feet. And to proclaim the gospel to those that are far from God. So, Father, we thank you for your shed blood and your body. And we pray that as we enter in this time of worship and communion and response, that we would be reminded of just how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, we're going to stand. We're going to receive communion. If you are a guest of ours, uh, we practice what we call open communion, which means all we ask is that you be a follower of Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to participate in communion with us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we just invite you to stay or stand at your seat. Nobody's going to look weird at you. Nobody's going to think anything of it. Um, uh, But the way we do communion, we have four stations set up throughout the room. We encourage you to go uh, with your family and grab the elements and then participate with them together. Um, Pray as as family and friends. And just remember what Christ has done for us. Again, if you are new and if you're a guest, we invite you to participate. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we just invite you to to observe. Uh, So let's stand, church. Let's worship the risen Christ and thank him for his incredible gift of salvation to us through his body.